Good morning. Good morning, Rich. Good morning, Rich. Let's try one more time just for fun. On the count of three. Well, good morning. Good morning. Hey. Good morning. Um, well, a few, I don't know, we got a few loose ends to tie up here before we get started. Last uh, last Sunday we talked about it was a special Sunday that was not celebrated by the, the early uh, you know first century church. It was uh, Selection Sunday last week, right? And uh, and if you're like me, this Sunday has become Rejection Sunday. Um, my team lost already. How many of you your favorite team lost in the NCAA tournament? Yeah, all of us are cheering for New Mexico State, but you, know, you can't win them all. So uh, no, uh, see you. CSU lost, New Mexico State lost, Wisconsin's still alive, go figure, yeah, there's our Green Bay fan, Wisconsin fan, we'll see, keep an eye on that Dave back there, um, what else do we have, St. Patrick's Day yesterday, how many of you celebrated St. Patrick's Day, how many of you wore green, alright, how many of you did not wear green and got pinched, a couple of us, yeah, I tried to wear green. I, uh, my wife and I didn't have green on our kids all bit, but at one point I pinched my wife and she punched me back. So it's not, uh, it's not as fun as they say, you know. Um, pinching people there. Um, I had uh, one of my main green things that I have is a uh, Boston Celtics jersey. You know, it's like Rajah Rondo number nine. You know, I think that's his number. Um, but. Uh, I got to wear it around the house a little bit. My wife told me I better not go outside with that jersey on. Um, I, I don't know if I could still get away with wearing the jersey nowadays. But uh, anyways, what else do we have here? Um, they, I appreciate you guys' prayers. I had a number of you I asked us to pray for an event we had on campus this past week. It was an interfaith forum where they invited uh, oh, four different people to be a part of a panel there. There was, uh, it was sponsored by the Muslim Student Association, and they had uh, invited a, a Muslim... Uh, what do they call it? Imam, Iman, Iman, something like that. Um, they had a rabbi there, a Jewish rabbi. They invited a pastor, and then they invited a, a professor, you know, the atheist. So um, it was an interesting time. But when I got there, I showed up. I had a couple guys come with me just for some support there. And we, we met our contact from the Muslim Student Association. And uh, when we started talking with her, there was almost this look of terror that came across her face. You know, we're like, and she's like, uh there's already a, another pastor here. And I was like, you know, I, was, I didn't know what to do. I was kind of a little confused. But I guess she had invited me to be a pastor representing the Christian perspective. And then someone else in the Muslim Student Association had invited another pastor. And uh, and he already had a name tag on and everything. He had a, so uh, he was from the vineyard. seemed like a good guy. and uh, But they said, well, you can both be on stage if you want to. Um, and it was like everyone had one representative except for the Christians would need two or something like that so I decided I just deferred to him I told him I was praying for him and, and he kind of uh, was up there so they said I am pre-signed up for next year's event so uh, we'll see how it goes but I, I do feel like I came away with some lessons and some things I'll share here this morning as it relates to our, our um, the passage we're going to look at but appreciate your prayers and stuff there and trust that God will hold them in reserve for the next time around so, um, but anyways we're going to pray we're going to jump into Mark chapter 8 you know if you're new with us we've been going through uh, the Gospel of Mark, just one chapter at a time. And so we're going to look at Mark chapter 8 today. If you have a house Bible, it'll be page 998 and on to 999. But we're just going to pray and then 
ask that God would speak to each one of us wherever we're at, uh, whatever's going on in our lives, that He would speak to us from this text this morning. So let's just bow our heads and pray one more time. Lord Jesus, we do just thank you for this morning. God, we just thank you for this wonderful day and just uh, uh, even how you blessed just even the weather this weekend. God, it's just been wonderful to see spring in the air. Yeah, we hope we don't have any more winter or deep freeze left here. Um, but God, we, we just thank you for this day and this morning. And I just ask, Lord, that you would open our eyes, maybe a little bit more this morning, to yourself and to your word. God, to give us ears to hear and to understand some things you want us to catch. God, it might be a different lesson, a different verse that speaks to each one of us. But please, speak. Give us soft hearts. Give us focused hearts. Just for the few minutes we have to look at this passage together. We ask for all of this grace in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, Mark chapter 8 here. Again, if you have a house Bible, I think it's 998, 999. Um, And we're just going to read kind of a few verses at a time and just kind of look at some of the points, some of the lessons we can pull out. Um, And we'll go from there. We're just going to start here. This is a... If your passage reads the same as mine, Jesus feeds the 4,000. We're going to look at this, um, this miracle here that Jesus performs in beginning of Mark chapter 8. First, we're going to read just the first five verses. Um, During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, But where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. So we're going to stop right there. You know, this, well, there's another section to the story here. We're just going to stop, kind of set the stage a little bit here. Um, so this is the second feeding of, of a large crowd. You know, there was a feeding of the 5,000 back in chapter 6 of Mark that Jeff talked about. This is uh, 4,000 in this crowd, at least 4,000 men and then women and children as well. And so there's a... Um, one of the things I wanted just to compare was maybe a, a little of the, the difference between um, the first time the disciples encountered a situation where there was a large mass of people that were hungry and needed to be fed, and maybe what they've learned from that for this second time around, and then maybe pull some things out of it that, that we might be able to learn from this. Um, the first thing here I, I notice is, uh, uh, you know, Jesus says, I have compassion for them, um, you know, let's feed them. It says they've been with me for three days. You know, one thing to keep in mind about this passage, sometimes you find people that look at the the different miracles in the Bible, and one of the things they'll do is just try to rationalize. How could this happened naturally? There's got to be a natural explanation. And so what they'll do is take something like, um, you know, even with the 5,000, they'll say, well, you know what happened? Actually, it was not that Jesus multiplied the bread. It was that this, this boy brought his fish and his loaves, and it started the whole group of people sharing their lunches and it's just a wonderful lesson of sharing you know and and I read that and I go no I don't see that at all but one of the things I do know for sure when you look at this passage 
says these people had been with Jesus for three days and they ran out of food. The other one you could make the case. Everyone came on Sunday to see Jesus on the mountain. They brought their lunches and they all shared, which I think is just silly. Um, but this one you can't even make that silly argument because they were there for three days. They ran out of food. They had nothing to share. And, and Jesus provided a miracle there. But we have to watch out for those that are always looking for a way to explain it without um, God actually doing something beyond what would have occurred naturally. So, uh, But anyway, Jesus said, I have compassion for these people, which is the same thing he said the last time he, he multiplied the bread. Um, he asked the disciples, you know, the last time uh, when they had the miracle, you know, he said, um, uh, well, you feed them. They were like, how do we feed them? Send them home. And Jesus was like, we can't send them home. We need to feed them. And, and then Philip, he was interacting with a little bit. And Philip says, uh, well, how are we going to get enough money to buy bread for everyone? And Jesus, you know, did he need money in the end for that miracle? No, it wasn't a, it wasn't a money issue. It was a bread thing. Jesus took the bread and he multiplied it. So this time he, he says, um, you know, they're, they're starting to talk about the problem. And they ask him, where in this remote place can we get enough bread to feed him? I think at least the disciples were saying, this is not, money is not the issue here. It's not the answer to everything. Uh, the next thing is he asks them, how many, how many loaves do you have? What happened in the first time they did this? He asked them how many loaves, and they didn't know. They had to go check and see how many. This time they were prepared. You know, they're like, okay, it's a bread deal, and I better find out how many loaves we've got out in this bunch of people. And they already had the answer, it seems like, seven loaves. Um, and then, you know, they roll from there. But one of the things I want to just catch a little bit here as we see this is make sure we don't miss the heart, um, the heart of it here. You know, Jesus said, um, I have compassion for these people. And, and really there's a, a lesson there. Jesus... Jesus, he felt for the people there. He had a shepherd's heart. He, he saw them the first time this situation happened. The disciples were like, get them out of here. We don't have bread. Send them home. And Jesus said, no, I have compassion. I want to meet this need. You provide for them. And he did some training, of, you know, some faith things there and stuff. But, but Jesus has a heart of compassion for people. And the question is, do you? Do you and I have a heart of compassion? Do you have a, a shepherd's heart? Or are you kind of like, hey, look, I got my lunch. You go find yours. We'll all just be happy doing our own thing, right? But if you have a, if you don't have a heart of compassion, you don't have the heart of God. You don't have the heart of Jesus, of, of caring for the needs of others, even beyond yourself. Um, you know, I like the quote. Some of you have probably heard this before. I think Mark Darling shares this often when he teaches. He's a, uh, what did you say, a flamboyant pastor, an audacious pastor up in Minneapolis. There, but he, he says something like this often. Um, People don't care about how much you know. They, they need to know how much you care. You know, it's a bigger deal, not what you know. Boy, I know a lot of the Bible. I've got a lot of verses memorized. But, but do you have a heart that shows you care about others, beyond your own needs, beyond your own lunch? Do you care for others? Because that's, that's important in God's life. Jesus had a heart. He cared for others. The disciples were sometimes just thinking, all right, you know, we've got enough bread for us. Uh, but we need to make sure we catch that heart of compassion. Um, you know, even as a church, just uh, sometimes people wonder, well, how do you get involved in serving in the leadership community in the church? You know, one of the prerequisites we have in our, our leadership, um, you know, it's just a list of things that we look at and kind of see where someone's life is at. But one of them is uh, to have a shepherd's heart. Do you have a heart to care for others? 
Do you have a heart to take someone under your wings spiritually? You know, a lot of times we say it's just enough to take care of myself, my family. There's so much going on there. But really part of a, a leadership, spiritual leadership, is when you trust God enough to give you the capacity not only to provide for yourself or your family, but to even think out of the box and, and take someone else under your wing. Take another couple. Take another single person. And you help them in the Christian life. It's one of the things we look for in leaders in our church. We go, are they thinking beyond themselves? Are they thinking out of the box? And, and it really uh, seems to be a prerequisite for you know, helping shepherd you know, God's flock here like Jesus did. But um, we just have to watch out for... You know, what comes naturally is just thinking, thinking about ourselves. And I remember I had a conversation oh, a couple months ago with Josh Whitney. We were just um, talking about churches. He's a pastor out in Salt Lake. We were staying in his home, just kind of comparing, uh, you know, shepherding notes, church notes. But one of the things we talked about is how, how hard it is sometimes to get a person to flip the switch to think about someone else. It's so easy to think about, I got problems, I got issues, I got financial troubles, I'm trying to put food on my plate, I got, and you get married and you go, I got my issues, I got my things with my wife and my kids, and the issues just get bigger. And it also seems like the, the opportunity or the, the people tend to look around less and less. The more responsibilities you get, the less you're looking. How can I help you out? You know, God will take care of my problems. I want to help you out. And we just want to make sure whatever phase of life you're in, you're thinking outside of the box of yourself to, to care for God's people. Um, you know, that's, it's just something you would have for all of us. Um, but anyways, let's keep going here with this section. Um, we're going to look on... I keep reading here. It says, so they figured out they had seven loaves. Um, he told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterwards, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 men were present. Having sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanunta, whatever, however you pronounce it, that other place there across the Sea of Galilee. Um, but, you know, this section is kind of where the, the miracle occurs. And there's probably so many lessons that we could pull out of um, out of this miracle. I just wanted to focus on this, this one verse here. Again, when Jesus multiplied the bread, it always had some similar things. You know, he asked them to, to take stock of what you have. They found this five loaves, or in this case it was seven loaves. Figured out how many fish they had. And then, and then he went through and he took what they had and he thanked his father for it. And then after that, he, he broke it and distributed it. And so, um, you know, there's a lot of different things, a lot of different lessons. I think the, the lesson for us, you know, most of you probably realize in your small group or things like that. I don't know if you've ever multiplied bread in your small group. If you have, I want to visit your small group. It sounds that'd be fun. Um, but obviously there were some lessons beyond the bread that Jesus was getting. And in some ways, um, you know, one of the bigger picture lessons that we see there is just this... Um, this idea that Jesus, he spoke of himself as the bread of life. He used the same process when, at, at the Lord's Supper. You know, when they took communion together, he said, Hey, look, I'm the bread, and, and remember me, and I'm going to be broken. And, you know, in essence, he's the bread of life that's to be distributed to everyone who's lost and hungry and uh, in need 
of, of Christ, you know, as their Savior and as their nourishment, their spiritual nourishment. And so in some ways there's a picture there that we have this huge task. They had to feed 5,000. We, we're supposed to feed the world with Christ. We're supposed to take the bread of life to the ends of the earth. That's a pretty big deal. You know, I, I can feel a little bit like the disciples going, how in the world? How do we do it? How do we even begin? I, I didn't even have a clue. How much money do we have? Anyone got any loaves? You know, um, I don't know, but the, the point was that it was a picture of us taking Christ to the rest of the world and trusting trusting Him to supply everything we need to get it done. Um, and I think there's a, that's you know, kind of a big picture symbolism thing we can pull out of it. But another thing that I want us to catch here is, it uh, seems like in the Scriptures, in the New Testament, there's an idea that um, being broken, there's a blessing related to being broken. I found it interesting that in this passage it says, He took, he took the bread, He gave thanks for it, He broke it, and He distributed it. In the, the next verse there, uh, in several of the real, uh, more literal, like the NAS, the ESC, it talks about he, he kind of did the process again. But you know what they called it this next time around with the fish? It says, you know, kind of did the same thing, but he says he, he blessed them and he had them distributed. And one it says he gave thanks and he broke them. And the other one he says he took them and he blessed them. And somehow, I think there's something God wants us to catch is that when something is... Given, when you take something that you have and you give thanks to God for it and, and you break it in a way to meet a need, um, there's a blessing that occurs there. And one of the examples I think of here is Mary. You know, in Mark 14, it talks about she took this very expensive um, jar of perfume that she had, and what does it say that she did with it? She broke it and she poured it on Jesus. And um, unbroken, it was this precious thing. It was a very valuable thing. But once it was broken, there was a blessing of uh, anointing Jesus with this. You know, he said, this is a beautiful thing she's done to me. Wherever the gospel goes, you'll remember what she did. And and I think there's a, a blessing in being broken. And I try to figure out, you know, how that works. I often have tried to shy away from this. I think um, if you've ever read the book, uh, True Discipleship by William McDonald, I think we have a couple of co- co- Excuse me. A couple pick a peck of pick of peppers. Um, a couple copies out there in the lobby. Um, but uh, one of the chapters that he has in there is called The Blessing of Brokenness. And, and if you're like me, I try to avoid reading things that talk about that. You know, it's like the blessing of I like the blessing of prosperity. Teach me how to be prosperous and you know, I'll take that lesson on. The blessing of brokenness does not sound so fun. But but I think there is a, a real blessing that comes from it. Sometimes it's when you're first broken before God that you become saved and there's a, a real sense of your need for him and that's when you might first meet the Savior. There's other times where we maybe we get proud and, and we need a little brokenness to get the grace God wants to give us. But uh, in this situation, I mean, he took these, you know, the pieces of bread they had, they broke them. In another situation with Mary, they took this precious thing and they broke it and used it. And, um, you know, the, what I've been thinking about related to our church in this is this whole idea of starting a second service here. You know, I've, I feel like in some ways what we have in, in joining forces, we've had, you know, as we've merged with the Valley View and we've become one here. You know what I've found that this gathering is a real blessing. It's a very precious thing to me and, and as I hear from others that, that everyone thinks that this, it's a good thing to be together here. But what we're talking about doing with the second service is taking something that's good, something that's whole, and breaking 
taking it and trusting that maybe we're going to better meet the need that this neighborhood and this city have in, in receiving the bread of life and getting Christ brought to them. And so we, we get a sense that God is leading us into taking this service and breaking it into two, that we might have more capacity to, to meet needs and uh, to distribute them. You know, I love how Jesus, he, he had the disciples distribute the bread to people. It's symbolic of us taking Christ to the people that need him. And as we, we think about this, it's going to be, a, I think, a challenging thing to break our service. One service at 10 o'clock, you know, I was telling at our pastor's meeting, I was just telling the guys, I think 10 o'clock is like a sweet time. It's like the perfect time. You know, it's like to get up early for setup or prayer is really not that early. You know, your kids have already been up for four hours by then. Um, um, and, you know, if you go any later, you start getting, you know, drowsy and wishing you were at lunch and things like that. At 10, is like your sweet time. And now we're looking at doing something like 9, which means an earlier start time than that. And 11, which means, you know, boy, if you get hungry before noon, you're going to have to fight it off. Um, but there's, there's some things that are going to have to happen. And, but, but we really feel like it's what what God has for us. You know, we do have these flyers. We've got a flyer made. We're going to be promoting this. 15,000 flyers in a big chunk of our neighborhood here. But um, let me see if we got a glimpse of those here. Um, oh, yeah. There's a quote before we get to our flyer. Uh, I like this. I think it's, a, you know, it's an anonymous one, actually. But um, the reason that we are not more freely given to men is that we are not properly broken. Uh, what a convicting thought that we're, we're not giving ourselves more freely to others to meet their needs because we're not maybe properly broken of ourselves yet. Um, let's see here. This one here, they sat down. Well, we already saw that. Can we fast forward one more, one more, and two services. Here's a picture of the one side of the, the flyer. It's just really this... Um, I think it's like a black or really dark surface on our postcard with alive jumping out. The other part of it there is, um, you know, this is the map of where we are. It has our our two services. We're starting on Palm Sunday with two services, and then Easter Sunday, giving free gifts to kids. Did we figure out what those gifts are yet? Jeff, uh, I can't remember. We talked about uh, balloons. We talked about the empty egg. We always thought that's good for, you know, the resurrection. The empty tomb is an empty egg. They're really inexpensive um, to buy a bunch of them. We're still figuring out the gifts, but there will be a free gift to give to people. Um, and this is just a description about Easter there, but this is uh, something that's in the works. Jeff talked about next Sunday. We're hoping to start passing out these flyers, you know, and... Um, 15,000 doors is a lot of doors, you know, and that's a, we're hoping that everyone will be involved in, in helping out with that. But, um, you know, some other things I think about in this um, second service is it means we're going to have to have, um, you know, in some ways, twice as many. We started uh, trying to multiply different areas to serve in. In some ways, there's like an overhead required for doing one service. you got a setup crew, you got the cleanup crew, and you could do that, and then you just kind of fill the room and it gets full, and it doesn't change a lot of the setup or teardown requirements. But when you do two services, it kind of multiplies some of the effort that's required. You'll have a setup and a teardown. There's probably going to be some sort of transition thing. Uh, we're going to need more people in some of the rotations. We've got some new sound guys that are in training. We've got some new band members that have been helping out here. But as you multiply things, um, it's going to require more hands on deck, more people getting involved, and, and some of you are probably aware of that, but I think that's a healthy thing. It's also going to require that we get um, twice, maybe twice as hospitable as we normally are. You know, I don't know if you're 
a normally a hospitable person. We, we've told people before we don't have a we don't have greeters at the door right now. Eventually we might, but sometimes when you get official greeters at the door, it means everyone else is not official greeters. And it's easy to go, you know, uh, I'm here. I got my donut. I got my coffee. I just kind of go with the flow. But we need everyone to think of themselves as an official greeter. You know, um, especially when we multiply into two services. Sometimes it can be a little confusing. Like, hey, these guys from Valley View. Uh, if you haven't met them, are they new or is this a visitor? Or I don't know. I don't want to embarrass them or myself. Let's just go talk to someone I do know. I want to give you guys a couple lines to try out to be thinking about here in the next couple weeks. Uh, I use them all the time. I probably use these lines on you, not in a bad way, but um, but they're ones to exercise. But one of them is uh, if you look at someone and you're pretty sure you've never met them before, it's safe to go up to them and say, I don't think I've met you before. My name is Rich, you know. And now if, if they look suspiciously familiar, you go, I can't remember if I've met you or not. And, and for me, most of the times I have. And they to remind me. And yeah, you've met me a number of times. And eventually it gets embarrassing and awkward enough that you start remembering their names. Um, the last one is, you know, even if you have met them, you're like, hey, good to see you, so-and-so, and you, you share their name with them as you've remembered it. But we need to make sure all of us are doing, hey, I don't think I've met you before. Or, or if you have, and then they remind you that you have, you really want to work to remember it for the next time. But we need to all be doing that. It's not just for the greeters. It's not just for the, the social butterflies in the bunch. This is going to be for all of us, especially when we do two services. Um, you know, we just need to make sure we're meeting everyone that comes in. No one's falling through the cracks. Um, you know, you can even practice when someone's sitting next to you if you want to. Uh, I don't know if I've met you before. My name is... Why don't you guys give that a shot real quick? Maybe if you know them or not, you practice that line. I don't know if I've met you before. Or... before your name again is um, but but two weeks from now Palm Sunday I really hope that every person here you're now officially trained you are uh, the firehouse greeting team we want to make every person feel wel- welcomed and uh, hey someone took an interest in me someone might even remember my name next time I come back um, but, but we just want to make sure that when we do two services we just need everyone you know the, the Christian life being hospitable showing love it comes naturally maybe to some people but it's really required for all of us if you're going to be trying to show people the love of Christ make disciples and um, things like that so we just want to be, be ready for that um, anyway there's our flyer we're hoping Lord willing we'll have a number of visitors we get a sense we're going to have some visitors you know we think that uh, just uh, last Easter when we opened the doors this place was almost filled to capacity the very first time we opened the doors and we're getting a sense it's going to be more full than that this next time so we thought in faith we're going to step out we're going to break a good thing and trust God to bless it and at the end of the month we're going to go you know what is this is God sustaining this is there enough people here to do a, a 9 and 11 o'clock and we're going to continue that at the end of the month we could go you know what uh, let's come back 
together and just have that sweet 10 o'clock service. You know, we'll see what God does there, but we, we thought it's worth taking a risk. You know, I know Tim shared at the worship night last time uh, just a verse where Jesus talked about, hey, when you, when you take the gospel places that people don't receive it, shake the dust off your feet. And when you go somewhere when people are listening, um, stay there for a while. You know, and he summarized it with the phrase, you know, fish where the fishing's good. Is that what you said, Tim? Something like that. But we get a sense the fishing is good in this neighborhood. And we're thinking, uh, you know, let's multiply this. Let's stick a few more fishing poles, lines, and nets out there and see what happens. You know, there is a chance that after we multiply that the next step could be to add another service and another service. And, you know, John Meyer was causing, uh, as he coaches us as a church, he said, you know, you guys might watch out that God might not have a plan for you to have four services in this one place. And that would be his plan for you. And we don't know, but it's a possibility. And we're just going to step out in faith here the month of April. We're asking for you guys to, to help out and to pitch in. And um, we'll see what God does here. But in the end, we could be like the disciples when we look on this miracle and we go, whoa, how did that... What just happened here, you know? I still wonder when I get to heaven, these multiplying these breaking bread miracles. I, I don't know, you know, if we get to go meet Moses and do the different things there, but I'm going to sign up for like, I want to watch a replay of how in the world did you break the bread and feed these people, you know? It's just like, what did that look like? Was it like one of those like cheap, you know, uh, B-budget movies where they show the same scene over and over again and he's breaking bread and passes it out and breaks bread and passes it out? And, or, you know, is it like, I just, I just, I can't even, it blows my mind. I know it happened. I know it was miraculous. I want to see the replay. You know, it's going to be cool. Um, but anyways, we're going to trust God for, for doing great things, um, you know, and taking the bread of life to our neighborhood and to this city here. So uh, let's move on here. Um, what else do we have? A few more points here. I think we'll keep an eye on the clock right here. Um, you know, after this, uh, let's just keep reading along here. After this miracle, and they were fed and he sent them home. It says, you know, the Pharisees came, they asked him, um, verse 11, Pharisees came and began to question him, to test him, asking for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply, why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given it. He, then he left them, got back into the boat, crossed the other side. This was just, oh man, these Pharisees, they drive me crazy. You know, they're just asking for a sign from heaven. I'm going, haven't you read the previous seven chapters here? You know, he's performing miracles in front of your face all the time. A shriveled hand here, a paralyzed guy getting up, all sorts of things. And you want a sign from heaven, you know. To me, it's kind of like if, if someone's really not looking... God can give them a whole bunch of signs and they're just not going to get it. But if you're really looking for a sign from God that He's real or that His Son is the way to heaven, um, I think He'll give you what you need here. We just have to make sure we don't have hardened hearts like the Pharisees. They didn't really want a sign. Uh, they just wanted to keep testing them and testing them. Um, anyways, it goes on here. Jesus um, 14. Here we'll go 14 through 21. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf that they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed with one another, Is it because they have no bread? Um, aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes that fail to see and ears that fail to hear? And don't you remember? And when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the four thousand, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven, seven. Um, and then he said to them, do you still not understand? You know, I don't know. 
Sometimes I have to watch the attitude when I'm reading these things. The Pharisees, they get under my skin. The disciples, they get under my skin. Um, come on, you guys. Didn't you just remember the miracle? You passed out bread to 5,000 people. Don't you think he could have done it again here, right? Um, you've got one loaf of bread. You know, he said, watch out for their yeast. They've got one loaf in their boat. Now, if you think about the other two miracles, uh, you know, five to feed 5,000. Doesn't take a lot of math here. How many people were fed per loaf? 1,000 men per loaf. Okay, and then you got four, no, seven loaves for 4,000. How many, how many per loaf here? Computer science people, right there? 571, right? Boom. Um, I did the math there ahead of time. But um, the point is, with one loaf proportionally, he could have fed a thousand, anywhere from 571 to a thousand people with one loaf. And they're going, do we have enough bread? Do we have enough bread? Do I have a clue about this guy who's with me here, who's multiplying bread, who's doing miracles, who can do anything that he needs to to meet our needs? You know, and it's easy to look on them and go, you know, no, you don't have a clue. Um, but, but I wonder if that same thought is, is true for us, you know. Um, first he said, watch out for, for the yeast. You know, what he was talking about, he wasn't talking about bread in the first place. He was talking about something else here. But what he was talking about was, you know, Matthew 16, the parallel passage says, watch out for the yeast and watch out for their teachings. You know, the teachings of... Um, here in this, you know, another place, Scripture talks about yeast being there was the old yeast that was uh, with malice and wickedness, and a new yeast that was with sincerity and truth. Um, but you know, he so said, "Watch out for that of the Pharisees." What, what's the teaching of the Pharisees related to? You know, they were very religious. Their goal was make the best impression you possibly can, and who cares what's going on in your heart? And Jesus said, "Watch out for that." You know, there's this, there's something tempting there. There's something just a little bit goes a long way. But you want to watch out for the appearance without having your heart right. We talked about that last week. Um, you know, Matthew 16 also talks about not only the Pharisees and that of Herod. It talks about the Sadducees. You know, the Sadducees were the ones that they didn't believe in anything supernatural. They did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in angels or demons or anything of that. They were very, they were the rationalists. Show me how it works naturally or I just don't believe it, you know. And we have to watch out for that. That, that thinking, that teaching is throughout our culture. The campus, um, you know, the, the professor that represented atheism, I just thought it was interesting. You know, you've got a, a Jewish rabbi from his synagogue and a, a guy from the Muslims and a pastor from the church. And the university, who represented the university? The atheist professor, you know. And that's, this is what they're propagating. They watch out for that teaching. You know, even the Christian circles, we have to go, oh, well, gee, I don't know if Jesus really did that or not, but I'm sure looking forward to heaven. Well, either he did it or he didn't, you know. And if he didn't do it, chances of him getting us to heaven or having a heaven are, are probably less likely, you know, if, if he couldn't do this anyways, you know. So we have to watch out for that. The Herodians had another approach. They were... They were kind of skeptical. You know, at one point Herod, you know, had Jesus before him, kind of like, show me a miracle, you know. Show me something cool, impress me. But he was also very, uh, he was the one that also had the woman dance for him, so much so that he, he promised the head of John the Baptist on a platter. They were into being sensual and worldly. And we've got to watch out for these things. Sometimes as Christians we can go, I'm forgiven, I'm headed to heaven, and, you know, I'm forgiven if I do worldly things here or worldly things there. You know, we've got to watch out for that teaching. That's not what a follower of Christ has been called to. Watch out for these things. But, you know, again, Jesus wasn't talking about that in the first place. Um, I mean, he wasn't talking about bread. He was talking about these teachings. I thought it was funny. If he was talking about bread, 
they still didn't have a clue. You know, it's like, oh, bread, we have enough? No, you know, they just... But Matthew says, Jesus responded to him by saying, you have little faith. You know, you just saw this miracle of feeding 5,000 with five loaves. You saw this miracle of feeding 4,000 with seven loaves. And, you, you know, what do you think the next data point is going to be? I don't know, we just don't have enough bread. You know, it's like, come on, guys. Let's get a clue here. Um, but at the same time, I think we have to look at our lives. If we're honest, if we're fair, you know, we all know we could be just like these disciples. What is it in our world that God has shown us time and time again that He'll come through? Is it finances? Is it job or career choice? Is it relationships? Is it um, What is it that is facing you right now that you're wondering, boy, I wonder if God's going to come through this time. It's easy to look at them and go, duh, duh. But I think each one of us can be the same way. We just need to make sure we're, we're searching our heart and trying to find out what is it that uh, God wants me to trust them with. You know, that's, that's what it came down to was, don't you trust me? You know, Jesus is like, I'm here, I'm God in the flesh, I'm the Messiah. I'll take care of anything that you need. Do you get it? Do you trust me? Will you look to me to meet these needs? And, and he was training them. You know, it was a work in progress here. And he's, he's patiently teaching us as well. You know, I just think about, it could have read here, you, you know, he, he hits the disciples with like eight questions in a row. You know, like, you know, he might as well said, don't you get it? Don't you get it? Don't you get it? He phrases it differently eight times. Don't you remember? Are your hearts hardened? Don't you see? And he could have said at the end of it, and then Jesus left the disciples to go look for some people that had a clue. Um, he didn't do that. He said, don't you get it? Come on, don't you get it? And he stuck with them. And he kept being patient. And he kept trying to teach them. And I just think we got to maybe be encouraged from that. You know, it says that uh, Philippians 1.6, that he, he began a good work in us, and he's going to carry it out to completion. And we just got to know that God, uh, he's not going to leave us, even if we don't get it. I don't get it all the time. Some different. I think about my kids, and I'm, I'm training them, and I'm disciplining them. And it seems like I discipline them for the same thing over and over and over and over again. And, and I think about it and I go, isn't that what God does with me? You know, it's like, it's not like I'm developing new problems. I just got the same old problems that He's continually trying to train me in. But, but He's patient. He didn't give up on them. He won't give up on you. Make sure we're not giving up on others. You know, he, He's patiently teaching us. Um, this next section here just says, uh, let's see, this is about uh, healing a, a blind man. Sometime we're going to see getting to the end here um, we'll just go through this one real fast here uh, 22 they came to Bethsaida some of the people brought a blind man uh, and begged him to touch Jesus I love time and time again in Mark I've noticed this theme that people are bringing other people to Jesus in other places Matthew has a lot of the ones that say you know your faith has healed you you trusted me you're healed time and time again Mark he says uh People brought people, people brought some to Jesus so that He could heal them. We don't even know what they were thinking or if they wanted it. We assume they wanted healing. We assume things like that, but, but you and I are the ones. We've got to be bringing people before Jesus. I think this is primarily in this day and age is bringing them in our prayers. We come into His presence together with others and we beg Him to help them. They might not even be there. They might not even know they're getting prayed for. But time and time again, when they brought people to Jesus, He, he impacted them because of, of their efforts. We just, uh, it's a theme that shows up often here. Um, anyways, they brought this blind man, begged him to touch Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand. He led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Um, 
Once more Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes and, and his eyes were open. His sight was restored. He saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't go into the village. But this was, uh, you know, this is one of the few miracles. I think it's the only miracle recorded in the New Testament where it was like a, a two-step miracle. You know, it was like he, and I don't fully understand what it means. He, he spit, you know, and he's just like, hey, come here. You know, spit in your eyes. And if you're sitting in the front row, you have to watch out for that for me. Um, but you probably won't get healed in the process, I tell you that much. Um, but, but, you know, I don't know exactly how that looked. But some reason, the first time he said, hey, what do you see? And the guy's like... Looks like trees, you know. Um, and, and then he said, here, let's do this again. And the second time is like, now he saw things clearly. And, you know, there's different thoughts on that. One, one thought that's a common thought from the commentators, that, you know, Bible scholars, is that Jesus can, um, he can perform any of his miracles uniquely. It's not like he had the same formula over and over again. This one, you know, it's spit every time. Spit, 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 and you're all healed. You know, he used mud. He touched people. He, uh, people touched him. Different things. It was unique formula to his healing every time. Um, and, you know, the same is still true. Um, the other one that I wonder, you know, this is the only place where it happened in phases. You know, some people are like, well, you know, maybe Jesus has got, you got to take your 13 steps before you're healed. Um, we don't see that throughout the gospel. This is the only two-step one here. But the one that I, I think could be the case a little bit is that the context of this, this is the only gospel that specifically talks about this miracle. And the context, I think, is, um, to me, he's working with the disciples. He's helping them. He's saying, don't you see? Don't you get it? Don't you see? And it's like the disciples, I think, are looking at things a little bit hazy. They're kind of getting a few things here. Jesus, this guy's important. Um, but eventually, he gives them clarity. Over time, he really helps them to see who he is and all the ramifications for that. And, you know, in some ways, this healing, I think, relates to the lesson he's he's doing with the disciples. He's engaging with opening their eyes so that they see things clearly. By the time it's done, and, you know, he... He ascends to heaven. The disciples got it. They have a very clear picture of who Jesus is, what their mission is. But it took them a while to get clarity. Same with us. You know, sometimes you get saved, you can see, I know enough to believe I need Jesus as my Savior. But it takes us a while to get clarity on And there's lost people all around me. They're not just trees walking around. There's lost souls that are going to heaven or hell. And I've got a mission related to that. And maybe there's a second phase where our eyes open up to our mission. But anyways, we've got to watch for that here. Peter's Confession, verse 27. Let's see. What did I put on that one? Here we go. Okay, here we go. Um, So verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went to the villages around Caesarea of Philippi and on the way they asked, on the way he asked them who do, who do people say I am? Jesus replied some say John the Baptist others say Elijah still others one of the prophets but what about you? he asked who do you say I am? Peter answered you are the, you are the Christ Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him you know this is uh, where are we at? They asked, who, who do people say I am? You know, this is something I noticed at that debate we were at the other day on campus was each one of the guys sitting on the platform had a different thought about who Jesus was. You know, the Muslims, what do they say about Jesus? He was a prophet, you know. Sure, he was a prophet, he was a great prophet, and but, you know, he wasn't quite as cool as Muhammad, things like that. What about um, the Jewish people? What do they say about Jesus? Maybe some of them you'll say he's a rabbi. Yeah, he was a rabbi. He was a teacher. And that's all he was. Um, The atheists, what do they say about Jesus? There's a whole spectrum of things they say, I think. Some go, I don't even believe he's a part of history. Which I just go, 
get a clue because the rest of the world, even, you know, secular world believes Jesus existed. I like the quote from uh, H.G. Wells, I think, which was a, uh, a historian this last century, but he just says, uh, I, am, I am a historian and not a Christian, but Jesus is arguably the central figure of all history. You know, it's a secular guy going, well, yeah, Jesus is in the middle of history. You can't, you got to kind of be overlooking some things to not get there. Let's say he's a good teacher or some other things there, or a folk story is another popular thing. But, you know, in some ways, I think this question that, that he asks here is, is one of the most important questions for us. What about you? Who do you think Jesus is? You know, he said to them, who do you say I am? But really, that's a question that your answer to that question, um, I think it, it affects every other part of your life. If he's just a good teacher, if he's God in the flesh, but he's nothing personal to me that doesn't affect my life. Um, who is Jesus Christ to you? And that's the question we all need to answer, we all need to be prepared for. My hope is that you've come to a place where you see him as um, as not only Lord of the heavens and earth and all creation, but your Lord, the one that you're to give account to for your life. Or, um, or as your Savior, the one who was to come, the, the Messiah who was to come, and to be the Savior of the world, and not just the Savior of the world, but your Savior and mine. Who's Jesus to you? You know, Peter says, you are the Christ. The parallel passage in, in Matthew 16 just talks about you are the Christ, the Son of the Living God, and and really, um, some of you might know there's you know there's a little bit of a the Christ is the the Greek word for really for the Anointed One, and the Messiah is the Hebrew word for the Anointed One, which is the the Anointed One was just a prophetic uh, understanding of. of the Savior who was to come into the world. You see it in Daniel 9. You see it all over the Old Testament. But it was just talking about God coming into this world to redeem people from the mess that they've made. And you see it over and over again. But uh, Peter was saying, you are the one who was to come and make things right. And um, we just, you know, that's the foundation. And in uh, in Matthew 16, it has a passage where he says, you know, Peter makes this statement. It's... He is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. He is God in the flesh. He is the one we've been waiting for. Um, and he goes on in uh, Matthew 16, that's where it says, "Well, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And that's where a lot of confusion has happened, where people think we're building the church on Peter. And, um, you know, that's where we get... Uh, Boy, that's where we get controversy between the Catholic world and the Orthodox world. And, you know, our church fathers trace back to Peter. Oh, no, ours do. Or they trace back to someone else. But, you know, that's not what Jesus was saying at all, you know. Um, the Greek for you are Peter, you know, was the idea of a stone, a smaller rock. And the Greek for um, upon this rock that I will build my church was a different word. One was Petros, for Peter was a stone. And Petro means like a bigger rock, like a, you know, like a rocky ledge or something like that. And Jesus was saying, upon this rock, upon this truth, I'm going to build the church. Not upon Peter the person. Always in Scripture, the rock referred to God. You know, that was the, the pattern that had been set there. So we have to watch out for that as we go. But upon this, that Jesus is the Christ. That he, um, He's the Son of the living God. The one, the anointed one who came to be the Savior of the world. And so, just need to make sure that's true for each one of us here. Um, I think to close, we'll just... Um, some last verses here. You know, 
Right after that, Peter, you know, it's this, this big, it's like this uh, on a watershed moment. Peter's like identified Jesus as the Christ. It's not just a generic thing. It seems to have some personal conviction and ownership. And then right after that is where you know, Jesus turned to him and he said, you know, get behind me. I'm in the verse right here. Uh, Jesus talks to him about he must suffer many things. Um, in verse 32, he spoke plainly about this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Uh, then Jesus turned and looked at his disciples. And he rebuked Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. You know, it's just, Peter went from this really big high, identifying this monumental truth, to Jesus is talking about, Hey, I'm going to be, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be killed. And... You know, Peter kind of pulls him aside. You, know, you can just imagine the scene. Have you ever been corrected by a younger brother or sister in Christ that may or may not have been on the right track when they corrected you? Anyone? Never? No, that's good. Feel free to try that out, guys. If you're younger than someone, make sure you come alongside them. And, no, but, you know, Peter's pulling him aside. Jesus, Jesus, let me, you're not going to, you know, dying. That would be dumb. You're the Savior. You're, you're supposed to set us free from the Roman government. You know, they're not going to kill you over my dead body. You know, and in some ways that seems like a nice thing, but Jesus knew. You know, he looked at his disciples. In some ways I wonder if he looked at his disciples and said, you know, he thought to himself, I'm going to be dying for, for these people here. I'm going to be dying for you. The thought of denying the cross and not going through with that, that's a thought from Satan. You know, he wasn't saying Peter was satanically possessed, but that thought that Peter spoke, that he represented, that was a thought and a temptation of Satan. There's an easier way to do this than going to the cross. Save yourself. Preserve your own life. There's got to be an easier way. And that thought is from the devil, and the devil of hell. And Jesus said, get away from me, Satan. And yet, you know, at first glance you look at that, it wasn't like Peter did anything. It wasn't like he was speaking some, you know, uh, I don't know, 666, 666, like message that you could back mask on a, on a record player and it says something bad. Um, he was just saying, hey, look, don't go to the cross, you know. And Jesus thought that was a big enough deal that you've got to catch this, disciples. You know, you've got to catch it. It's not about the here and now. If you're living for the here and now and self-preservation, um, you're going to miss everything because it's about a life to come. And, it, and it, if you think of this life to come, it allows you to be able to lay down your life and sacrifice in the here and now because you know there's something greater. And I was struck by the atheist on campus. He was just talking about, hey, look, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in heaven. I don't believe in, you know, uh, there's a purpose in life. It's just, you know, he, oh man, he got under my skin a little bit. Next year, I'm going to have some thoughts for him. I'll try not to meditate on it too much. But he was just saying, you know, um, it's really kind of like you're a God and you create your own future. And I was just like, ah, yeah. So, um, but, you know, but that's the way it is. If you're only living in the here and now, you, you better not die because that's all you got to go on. And you better preserve yourself, live for self. And if you got here randomly, there really is no purpose besides taking care of A number one, you know. And, um, and that's the exact opposite life that a disciple is called to. We're going to close just with a barrage of verses here. You know, they were just being short-sighted, not thinking eternally or spiritually. Um, which leads to these things here. These last verses, I'm just going to let you chew on these, take them home with you. You know, this is what he said. He began to teach them. Here's, here's how to have God's perspective. If you would come after me, you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me, or take up his cross and follow me. This one says, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. You know, the last part here says, um, 
If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Now these are, this is what it really means. You know, when your eyes are open to eternity and to spiritual things, you know that you, you can lay down your life. You're called to lay down our lives now. Um, we're called to sacrifice. Some of these other, uh, I love some of the, like the Amplified Version puts one verse like this. It just says, um, if anyone intends to come after me, let him deny himself. In parentheses it says, forget, ignore, disown, lose sight of himself and his own interests. Um, the Amplified Version puts the next verse like, or not the Amplified, the Living Bible puts the next verse like this, 35. If you insist on saving your life, you will lose it. Only those who throw away their lives for my sake and for the sake of the good news will ever know what it means to really live. You know, there's something of, of you see things differently when you think about eternity and laying down your life here. Um, one last verse just to share is um, I thought about this when we were at the debate again. You know, the atheist guy. He went off. He went off on religion in general. He went off on anyone with belief system at all. He said something like, um, "You know, I respect people, but I do not respect people who have. I do not respect religious beliefs at all." You know, he just kind of went. You got a religious belief? I don't respect that thinking whatsoever. And it was a little bit like, "Whoa!" And then he went off the bag on the Bible and some other things there. And I was reminded of this verse in Second um, Peter three three in the New Living. It just says. Um, most importantly, I want to remind you that in the, in the last days, scoffers will come, mocking the truth and following their own desires. And it goes on to, you know, to give some warnings about that. But I think we live in a day and age, men and women, where the truth of the Bible is mocked in this country like it never has been before. And you've got to make a decision. Do you stand with Jesus Christ? Do you stand with His words and this Bible? Or are you going to avoid the shame? You know, the cross was about the shame, the embarrassment that Jesus went through, the persecution. You know, following Him could even lead to, someday it could lead to your death. Um, just like it did the first disciples there. But, but either you're going to be uh, standing with Jesus and His Word, or you're going to have a shame going, you know, they're Christians, my parents are Christians, that's not cool, but I go to church with them. Or, um, I'm a Christian, but boy, the Bible sure is embarrassing. Jesus is going to return someday in all His glory. And there's going to be some people that go, there's, there's my champion, there's my Savior, there's my Lord. He's more awesome than I thought. And there's others that are going to go, Oh my God, it's true. It really was true. They really weren't joking. The Bible was not a lie. And now I'm doomed forever, you know. And there's going to be two groups of people. But I hope, men and women of the firehouse, that you're not ashamed to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And that you're not trying to be a follower of Jesus Christ, but living like a Pharisee or a Herodian, living sensual in this world. I follow Jesus, but I live just like everybody else. We want to be men and women who are not ashamed of Him, not ashamed of His words when He returns. We want to be getting the gospel out to this, this dying world. You know, that's our heart, that's our mission, that's why we're going to try to multiply services to do that with even greater capacity and greater effect. But let's, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do, uh, we do just thank you for your words. We thank you for your example. And we thank you that as our champion, you did take up a cross. You took up the shame and the embarrassment and everything this world had to offer. And um, Lord, you poured contempt on that. You ended up showing them that they were wrong, that you did rise again, that you were God in the flesh, the Savior of the world. And God, help us to take up our cross. Help us to deny our selfishness take up a cross and follow you. Help us to lay down our lives 
and really find true life, Lord God. Um, and we just ask as a church, you'd make us men and women who are not ashamed of your name, not ashamed to get baptized in your name, not ashamed to be men and women who defend the truth in the Bible and defend your words. We need your help in this. We ask you for this. Help us to carry out our mission. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, thank you guys for coming, and we'll see you um, next Sunday for uh, Mark chapter 9, and uh, hopefully we'll catch you at small groups this week as well to study this chapter a little more. But have a great Sunday.